Welcome to the Business Power Hour, hosted by Deb Creer. Join us as Deb talks with her guests, experts in their fields, as they share real-life stories and techniques to power up your business. Good morning, good morning. I am Deb Creer, and I am passionate about working with professionals to show them the tools to make themselves and their businesses as successful as possible. And we're really going to talk about something very different in today's program, but it applies to every single person. And I don't care if you're a business person or you're retired or you're, you know, happily just home with your kids. Whatever it is, it's about decision making and how we can make better decisions for whatever it is, you know, business, personal, all those various things. And so I am absolutely delighted today to be speaking with my guest, Dr. Gleb Sapersky. Thank you. I really appreciate being on the show. You know, we, it, this really is going to be so interesting. And, you know, it's, it's something that when you really think about it, there's a lot of aha moments, but there's also so many times where, you know, we, we just don't even think about things like this at all. And we make decisions that are probably not the wisest decisions in the world. And we do them for a variety of reasons. And so we're going to talk with you about how to make better decisions. So before we really jump in, let me tell folks just a little bit more about you. So Dr. Gleb Sapersky helps leaders and organizations avoid disaster through science-based strategies for effective decision-making and emotional and social intelligence. He is a well-known scholar, entrepreneur, author, speaker, consultant, coach, and activist in these areas. Gleb researches effective decision-making, goal achievement, emotional and social intelligence, meaning and purpose, mental health, and emotional well-being, and altruism as a professor at The Ohio State University, where he's in the Decision Sciences Collaborative and the History Department. He runs a nonprofit called, oh, I've lost the title of your nonprofit. What's the name of your nonprofit? Intentional Insights. Intentional Insights that popularizes pragmatic applications of these academic topics to politics, business, nonprofits, and other areas of daily life. He regularly publishes pieces on these topics in prominent venues, including Time, Psychology Today, The Huffington Post, and many, many other publications. He also appears regularly on network TV, on radio stations, as well as podcasts and videocasts. An Amazon best-selling author, Gleb wrote Find Your Purpose Using Science and other books, as well as over 25 peer-reviewed articles in academic venues. He does speaking and training as well as consulting and coaching for current and future leaders and teams in midsize and large corporations and nonprofits. As I mentioned, he is the co-founder and president of Intentional Insights, and he has a PhD in history of behavioral science from the University of North Carolina. Huh, wow, holy cow. So again, Gleb, welcome. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the welcome. You know, this is something that as I was reading your blog, which I am going to spell this out for folks because your name, you know, it's is a little bit more unusual. And, and so I'm going to spell out your website for people because you have blog posts and information that is absolutely fabulous. So your website is G-L-E-B-T is in Tom, S-I-P-U-R-S-K-Y.com. And we'll mention that several times throughout the program. But, you know, you've got tons and tons of great information on your website. But let's kind of take a step back. 
what made you decide to even get into this area, first of all, of study and then making it your true vocation? So a number of things. One of the things that really made me decide was when I was a teenager, I saw people around me making really bad decisions and it was really hard. You know, I always wanted people to have a good life. Mm -hmm. And I saw people all around me, everyone from my parents to politicians to business leaders making really bad decisions. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look back, uh, you remember the financial crisis of 2008. Right. That was a series of bad, bad decisions mm -hmm. by a whole bunch of people from ordinary people who you know, took out bad loans to people like the executives of Lehman Brothers, which was disabled, mm -hmm. you know, which was, uh, went bankrupt, and Enron in 2001, and all of these things way back when, uh, when I was growing up. Uh, I mean, it, it was just so sad to see people making bad decisions and suffering, mm -hmm. so many people suffering because of the bad decisions taken by both ordinary folks, but especially high-level leaders who should have known better. Right. And so I started studying this topic, and I found out that we really don't have a practice of training our leaders, especially in decision-making. Mm -hmm. And that was terrifying for me because it's their job to make decisions. Right. You know, that's what they're, we're paying them for. That's why CEOs are getting you know, the hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. But you know what? They are not really trained in doing, making good decisions. Right. And it's, it, it seems silly, but it's true. They're, they're just not. But there's a lot of science on decision-making, which I went into and studied. So I'm a mm -hmm. professor of behavioral science, history of behavioral science. There's a lot of strategic approaches to decision-making, which are going to result in much better decisions than if people just go with their intuitions, just go mm -hmm. with their guts. Because our guts were made to essentially survive in the savanna environment right. and kind aren't the, really adapted. Right, flight or fight type of instinct. Yeah, and we can talk about that. But they're not... So, so they're not you know, they don't support our current environment. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's the big problem for us. And that's something that we need to actively deal with. So that's that's what I wanted to do. And that's what I got into this field. And that's why I started the nonprofit. You know, I do consulting for companies. And that's at gladsaborski.com. Also, the redirect is disasteravoidanceexpert.com. Mm -hmm. So folks can go there. And that's why I do consulting and speaking and so on for fees. Now, and do and at the same time, I started Intentional Insights at intentionalinsights.org to provide this for free to ordinary Joe on the street out there mm -hmm. to be able to for them to gain the benefits that my paying clients get for hundreds and thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. So that's my aspiration. Great, you know, and and I think you know obviously what you say is so very true. We have leaders, and you know whether it's CEOs the leader of a nonprofit, you know, and obviously political leaders. And we're not going to go down that direction, folks. You know, don't panic. We're not really going to go down there. But, you know, so we're generalizing these things. But again, it doesn't matter if you're the leader of a small business. You know, you've got yourself as an employee or thousands of employees or, you know, all these various things. We have all these decisions that we have to make in order to move forward. And so many times we make bad decisions, you know, and, and, and we're obviously not trying to make bad decisions. So Gleb, why do we make bad decisions? So we make bad decisions because so many of us trust our guts. Mm -hmm. That's what we're brought up to trust our intuitions, our gut reactions. Right. And that's what we are, you know, are told to go with our guts mm -hmm. and leaders are seen as powerful if they make them good 
if they make quick decisions, very quick decisions, and stick with them, right. their gut reactions. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem with that, unfortunately, is that our guts mm -hmm. have been brought up in the savannah. So recent research shows that our gut reactions, our intuitions, our emotions are part of what scholars call the system one or the autopilot system of thinking. And we have okay. two systems of thinking. So this autopilot system of thinking is unfortunately very powerful. Mm -hmm. And it's our emotions, it's our intuitions, it's the fight or flight response. It's mm -hmm. the one that says, is this a threat? Right. And if it's a threat, then people who are more defensive and pessimistic tend to withdraw the flight response. People who are more aggressive and optimistic tend to be attack mm -hmm. the fight response. Mm -hmm. And you know, sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. Unfortunately, there are plenty of times when it's not good. You know, when it was a saber-toothed tiger, we definitely want to flee. And right. when it's the attacking tribe attacking us, we do want to fight, generally. Mm -hmm. But a large number of situations don't qualify for a flight or flight, or flight, or flight response. Now mm -hmm. imagine that you are dealing with uh, your boss, and your boss is giving you some constructive criticism on your performance. Mm -hmm. Now... The fight response would be to shout back at your boss and say, no, no, that's wrong. I am awesome. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the flight response would be to stick your fingers in your ear and say, la, 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 I right. can't hear you. Mm -hmm. You don't want to those... deal with that criticism. Exactly. And you know what? Neither of those are going to be conducive to you keeping your job. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, you cannot yell and you cannot ignore the situation. Exactly, exactly. Unfortunately, our autopilot system is telling us to do exactly that. It's mm -hmm. telling us to yell and ignore the situation mm -hmm. uh, or to fight back and shout back. So what we have, unfortunately for us, is a second system of thinking. It's the intentional system. Now, the autopilot system developed way back when. People may know it as the amygdala system, the lizard brain, and so on. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit more complicated than that. I won't get into the neuroscience of it. But uh, there's a second system of thinking, which is centered around the prefrontal cortex, which is the more intentional system of thinking, also known as system two. Mm -hmm. This system of thinking developed as human beings started living in tribes. So, you know, you don't want to tell your tribal boss to stick it, uh, you know, when uh, the tribal boss is giving you some constructive criticism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, neither do you want to just, you know, flee. Right. So same situation with your boss in the current days, <laughs> in your fly, you know, mm -hmm. your tribe and your tribal chief. So, that was a system that uh, enabled us to grow in those environments. And that's the time when our brain expanded from around 300 cubic centimeters to around 1,500 cubic centimeters. Mm. So we have a really large brain growth during the time that we started living in tribes in order to, uh, what the recent research shows, accommodate for living in tribes okay. and very complex social interactions that we have to do. And But unfortunately... The autopilot system is still way more powerful than the intentional system. It, sh mm -hmm. it shapes about 80 to 90% of our decision-making. It turns on in milliseconds, whereas the intentional system turns on in about a second. So it's hundreds of times slower. Mm -hmm. You know, you can feel the weight of the intentional system working. The intentional system, it takes a lot of effort for it to work. When you try to restrain your emotions from either yelling back at your boss or shutting down and not listening to what your boss is saying, right. or when you're trying, you know, not to take that second or third piece of chocolate cake, you know, that can be difficult for many oh. people. Oh, <laughs> you mean I'm not supposed to have three pieces of chocolate cake? You can if you choose to, but the, 
difficulty comes from when your autopilot disagrees with your intentional system. Right. And, you know, your emotions tell to you that you want, that you should take that second piece of chocolate cake. Mm-hmm. And your more conscious, intentional brain tells you, no, that that's not good for your diet. Right, right. <laughs> and what ha- tends to happen is that our autopilot system is based, it's very much informed by survival, shelter, reproduction urges, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, anxiety, fear, defense responses. Mm-hmm. And so these are the things where it will tend to dominate. Now, these, it's very short-term oriented. It doesn't see what's in our actual long-term interest. It doesn't see that our survival may be benefited more by having a healthy body as opposed to just the pleasure of mm-hmm. eating food in the short run or something like that. So it's very short-term oriented. It's also not very mathematically astute. And being mathematically astute, you know, being able to calculate the exact costs and benefits of each decision mm-hmm. And the consequences of each decision is what the intentional system is for. So that is the best use of the intentional system. Unfortunately, most people tend to go with their guts. Mm -hmm. Most people tend to go with their intuitions, including CEOs. They very often tend to go with their intuitions. They're famous for going with their guts, you know. And, you know, this applies to CEOs, to political leaders, so on. Those who are seen as going with their guts and being strong and consistent often tend to get the top job, even though it tends to end badly for the organization. Mm -hmm. Right. Because as you mentioned, they didn't think about the long-term costs, goals, things like that. It was just, hey, this sounds good, bad right now. Exactly. Exactly. Their autopilot system said, yes, this is something I like, or no, this is something I dislike. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they went with it, unfortunately. (laughs) Well, and in so many ways, we have been told that we have to make those quick decisions. I mean, you know, how many times when, you know, I I remember, you know, in in school, when, you know, I'd start to think about a question and the teacher would literally snap their fingers and go, come on, come on, out with it, out. And I'm like, and so you did, you just blurted out the first thing that came to your mind, which sometimes was right. But you're right. And so many times it was it was also wrong, um, you know, and 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 it seems, you know, with bigger decisions, even big decisions, you know, it, people, if you're if you pause, if you look like you're thinking about it, so many times that comes across more to the people who are watching as indecisiveness and a poor leadership skill. I know. No, that's terrible that it that comes across that way, because. It is the essence of strong leadership, really mm-hmm. strong leadership, to be able to consider the decision thoroughly and change your mind based on new evidence. Right. That is you know, some of the skills that we can talk about what leads to good decision making. Mm-hmm. People don't perceive that. They see strong leaders as those who are able to make quick decisions and you know, jumping to conclusions and not changing their minds in spite mm-hmm. of more and more evidence showing that their initial decision was bad and mm-hmm. wrong. And so these are very highly problematic traits that are prevalent in so many leaders in American businesses and American mm-hmm. organizations. And not simply, you know, highest levels, but middle managers and so on. Mm-hmm. They all, the culture that is determined by the CEO comes down through the middle management and so on to everyone uh, and they, to the everyone in managerial positions. And this is very harmful for American businesses. They lose billions, billions, Mm -hmm. billions of dollars because of this. Mm -hmm. And just looking at this, 
you know, I see so many people out of jobs because of this. I see so many people bankrupt because of this. And uh, they suffer, and they want to stop their suffering. Mm-hmm. I want to help them make better decisions. I want, want to help businesses make better decisions. And that this will be better off for everyone. It's a win-win right. for employees and employers if they just make better decisions and don't do the things that really devastate their business. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and the funny thing is that the vast majority of the time, the decision does not have to be made immediately. You yes. Know, yes, if it is something that is is truly, you know, you're in danger, then yes, obviously that has to do it. But in in most of the cases, it's okay to even, you know, pause you know, and, and and rethink it, you know, mm-hmm. put, reframe it. Um, you know, what you know, what what really were they asking? Um, I do uh, a lot of media training. And I tell people before they answer, pause just a moment and kind of repeat the question in their head. You know, what was it really that that reporter was looking for as opposed to what maybe they actually said? And and, you know, that that slight little pause gives them just enough time to think about it and think, okay. or sometimes it's "Mm, I don't really want to answer that question. So how can I answer it in a different way? Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's the pause gives a chance to your intentional system to turn on mm-hmm. when i i mean i do a lot of interviews including with media and what i've been advised to do with when i got some media training myself was to think about when you hear a, a reporter's question or somebody's question mm-hmm. don't answer the specific question they asked think about the most positive form of the question that could have right. been asked mm-hmm. and then answer that question mm-hmm. right. and giving you that time helps you reframe the question in your mind in a way that will help deliver the best response that you can while still answering the question appropriately. Mm-hmm. So and it takes effort. It takes skill. It's not a learned, it's not a learned thing. It's unfortunately, these are all things that we're not taught in school. No. And, you know, my eventual aspiration is to have decision-making classes be in school right. and not to have teachers press students like the way that right. they did yeah. you yeah. to like, you know, right. come out. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's, right. that's just so not helpful. Right. And, yeah, not conducive to learning important, valuable skills in decision making. Okay. Well, and it's funny because as as we were talking about, um, you know, media training, and and again, it, this works for anybody in any situation. You know, because somebody has asked you a question, well, pause, take time to to think it through. But you know, that pause is also a trick that, and and I'm you know using that word deliberately that media will use because we don't like silences. So sometimes they will, you know, you'll say something and they won't respond right away because we don't like silence. And so then we blunder back in with something else that we're saying. Um, And and typically, obviously, this is happening in uh, an interview that isn't, you know, one of the most positive in the world. Or, you know, maybe it's that, you know, mom is asking, you know, the kid. Uh, you know, who, who did this, who made this mess? And then she just pauses because, you know, initially the kid said, well, not me, but then mom doesn't say anything. And so then the not me becomes, well, but I might have, well, you know, because we don't like that silence. And so we start just blundering merrily along and pretty soon we've admitted that we made that mess and oopsie. (laughs) Yes. There is definitely that phenomenon that people are uncomfortable with silence mm-hmm. and they are uncomfortable with decision, with uh, taking a pause to make decisions. Right. And that, uh, what the research shows is that we generally tend to have much more time for decisions mm-hmm. than we intuitively feel that we do. 
we what is there's research showing that what happens is that people have discomfort with uncertainty mm -hmm. and they want to commit to a certain course of action regardless of whether it's a wise course of action. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so just because of people's anxiety around uncertainty, they don't they make the decision much quicker than they should mm -hmm. without taking appropriate time to evaluate the information and make a thorough considered decision. Right. And even, especially for important decisions, you know, the more important the decision, the more effort it is wise to spend on going for a thorough process of decision making mm -hmm. before making the decision. So for example, I consult with companies on deciding on a merger and there are so many companies that go into a merger that don't work out well. You know, about half of merge of the mergers that take place in the United States just don't work out well. They work mm -hmm. out pretty poorly. And I consult with a number of companies on and I tell a number of them that, you know, when you go through everything and you weigh the costs and benefits, you're much better off not going through that merger. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, a number of people aren't happy to hear that who are advocating the merger. Mm -hmm. But you know, I just saved that company two million dollars, you know, not going or through the more. merger mm -hmm. or right. more. No, I, I'm just using a recent example mm -hmm. that we calculated. So that's a really weighty decision and that you want to take some time mm -hmm. in deciding whether you want to go through with it or not. Mm -hmm. What companies uh, often don't consider is what's called opportunity cost, which is mm -hmm. the cost of making the decision in terms of investment of resources, not mm -hmm. simply the investment of resources into this opportunity, but the failure to have resources to invest into other opportunities. Right. So that's opportunity cost. Mm -hmm. So these are things that people very frequently don't consider when they're making a decision. You know, maybe you would be better off making a merger with another company. It would be a quite a bit of a better fit for you mm -hmm. and so on. Or investing the money elsewhere, growing your own operations instead of investing into a merger. And that's frequently a problem that I run into with opportunity costs not being considered as people make decisions. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and I think so many times, too, we also make those decisions because we, you know, quickly because we feel like we have to. And sometimes we are literally put in that position where they say, you must decide now. Um, you know, I was talking with someone not long ago that got a job offer and they weren't really sure that it was a good fit, but they were told, we need your decision now. Mm. And, you know, and, and they, they said, well, you know, or actually they gave them a short period of time, but <laughs> very short, you know, certainly a much shorter period of time than they were comfortable with. Mm. And, and my response to them was, this is clearly how this company, or at least part of that company functions. Do you want to work in a company that will not give you time to consider the ramifications? And, and, you know, he looked at me and he said, you're right. I don't want to work in that environment where you're forced to make those decisions too quickly. You know, same thing happens in your personal life. You know, whether it's just something like, you know, hey, where do you want to go to dinner? I need to know right now. Uh, and you pick <laughs> a restaurant and then you're going, I really didn't want to go there. Or, yeah. you know, something that is, is obviously much more serious. You know, it, if somebody forces you to make that decision very quickly, my gut instinct <clears throat> is to say, maybe that's not really where I want to be. Mm, yep, that makes sense. I think that's a wise perspective to not allow yourself to be forced and rushed. You know, consider whether you are really would be better off to, you know, taking that time mm -hmm. and pushing that person, pushing back on the person. I would have encouraged that person to, you know, 
question, express curiosity. Right. Why do you want me to make a decision mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. quickly? Sometimes right. the company, you know, sometimes it's, a, it's an environment. Sometimes it's just the anxiety of the job, you mm-hmm. know, uh, offer. I work in a number of situations where I deal with hiring and I help companies make decisions on hiring. In mm-hmm. fact, I have a number of, I have a decision-making app and guideline sheet that helps people make oh. decisions, especially mm-hmm. in hiring, but also in other decisions that I'd be happy to uh, provide to anyone who emails me and says they heard me on this radio, on this right. program, Mile mm-hmm. High Radio. So you can email gleb at intentionalinsights.org. Again, that's gleb, G-L-E-B, at intentionalinsights.org, and ask for a tip sheet and app on making decisions. Hiring is an especially good one for this mm-hmm. because you can figure out a number of categories and you can evaluate them mathematically and then make the hiring offer. And I strongly encourage companies that I work with to give time to people to consider the offer and not have them rushed because research shows if people are given time, they are more committed to the offer if they actually mm-hmm. accept it. And you don't actually want to work with someone who took the offer under pressure then realize that they'll be upset and leave later. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's just not a thing that you want. You're going to have a lot more costs going forward, training this person and then uh, that and person. And they leave, leave you know, in, yep. in a lot of cases. Well, and it's also interesting, you know, you mentioned asking them, you know, why they need that decision right away because there might actually be a valid reason for it. Yep. But it could also show kind of some desperation on their part. So that might give you an advantage in negotiating. You know, if they if they say we absolutely have to have you on board our team by Friday, you know, and then it's like, hmm, well, maybe I need more money or, <laughs> you know, now, you know, clearly you could push it too far. But sure. it, it is it's, you know, I it, it's kind of, you know, the, the like the salesperson that says, mm-hmm. you know, this deal will go away by tomorrow. It's like, <laughs> meh, probably it won't, you know, because probably you're won't. still going to want me to buy that product. Mm-hmm. But if you really maybe they've got a quota that they have to make. So it's like, OK, well, what can you throw in to make it more um, enticing for me to do? So it's it's kind of interesting to, to mm-hmm. you know, like like we said, you know, find out why they need that decision right away. Yes, this is definitely something to take time and figure out why and express mm-hmm. curiosity. And again, if they don't give you an answer, then that's something to be quite cautious about working right. with them. Because, right. you know, why do you, why do you need to work with people who are like that? Mm-hmm. You know, and taking time to consider a decision is really wise. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I strongly encourage people is to recognize that each person, each individual, has a series of cognitive biases. So cognitive biases are human thinking errors that cause us to make bad decisions. And all of us have a number of these biases, all of us. Mm -hmm. So an example, one frequent example is optimism versus pessimism. And Mm -hmm. another one is overconfidence. So Mm -hmm. research shows that people tend to be quite overconfident in their capacities. So I often like to start my speeches by asking, hey, you know, how many of you here consider yourselves below average drivers, you know, 45% and below? And, you know, mm-hmm. usually I don't get anyone raising their hand. And I say, who, who here considers yourself an average driver, you know, 45 to 55% dial? And mm-hmm. I raise my hand, you know, to help give people encouragement and because mm-hmm. I consider myself an average driver. Right. And, you know, maybe about, you know, something like 5 to 10% of the audience raises their hand. 
And I say, well, you know, we just by coincidence, we happen to be in a room of, you know, awesome drivers. That's great. Right, yay. Yay, woo. We're all great drivers. Well, you know, uh, studies show that according to questionnaires, polling questionnaires, 93% of the population uh, considers them in the United States, and this was done college students, consider themselves above average drivers. Oh, 93% mm. consider themselves, and these are college students who have much oh, less dear. experience right. in driving. Mm-hmm. You know, it's there's a reason college students uh, have higher insurance premiums. Mm-hmm. Well, younger people in general have higher insurance right. premiums. Mm-hmm. So they consider themselves, you know, above average drivers 93%. Now, this is, this is not simply an American problem, but it's uh, definitely exaggerated in the United States. A similar study in Sweden showed that people consider themselves, you know, college students, consider themselves, uh, 69% consider themselves above average drivers. Mm-hmm. So there's less overconfidence and arrogance in the United States. But it's United still States, pretty high. Mm-hmm. It's still pretty high. It's still quite problematic. It's still not realistic. Mm-hmm. But it's less than here. So that can tell you something about it. Right. But uh, that talks to the general phenomenon of overconfidence. Mm-hmm. And people tend to be vastly overconfident in, the, in their decisions. Mm-hmm. So when you do studies on when people say they're 99% sure that their decision is right or that something is the case, mm-hmm. when you actually evaluate how often are they right, so when it's something that can be clearly determined, they're only right 80% of the time. Ah. So they have, you know, the difference between 99% and 80% mm-hmm. is something like 2,000%. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you imagine why Las Vegas and Atlantic City make so much money on gambling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and well, and, and we do. We, we think... And part of it is, you know, just positive thinking. You know, we want to think that, you know, that that next thing that we put in the slot machine is, you know, is going to win or, you know, that our idea is the the next multi-million dollar idea, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and again, we didn't think it through. Yeah. Well, this is why about 90 percent, 80 to 90 percent of new entrepreneurs fail and new right. enterprises fail. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean you shouldn't start a new enterprise, but it means that you should be much less confident than mm-hmm. uh, you typically be, and you should do a lot more research and preparation before you, uh, than you intuitively feel you should mm-hmm. in going into that. And the interesting thing is that this works with both optimism and pessimism. So mm-hmm. I was doing some consulting for a nonprofit, mid-sized nonprofit here in Columbus. Um, I'm based in Columbus, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And uh, the nonprofit, I was, as part of that, I was giving some executive coaching to the nonprofit leader and the nonprofit leader was feeling uh, that his board of directors was being quite pushy and jerky and not and causing him quite a lot of anxiety mm. so and mental in other stress. words they weren't agreeing with him not quite that they weren't agreeing but they were close. Being, they were yeah. being mean. they were okay. disagreeing in a mean way in an okay. aggressive way okay. uh, you know like he, you know, as an example uh, one of the board members was emailing him about his finance, um, you know, plan for the mm-hmm. year and uh, doing things like having three question marks in the ah, uh, title. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is just like a little sign right. of mm-hmm. kind of attitude that he got. It wasn't saying you idiot, but it was close. It was close. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It was implying you mm-hmm. idiot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he was dealing with that for a while. And I was strongly encouraged him to go to the board of directors and say that he was feeling anxiety and he needs to be more supported. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't 
uh, he is really being harmed by these jerky actions by certain mm-hmm. board members. And he didn't want to do that. He was scared. He was pessimistic. He mm-hmm. uh, thought that the board of directors would, when you know, he came and said that he just you know can't handle this stuff, that they would fire him for being weak. Mm-hmm. And you know, I worked with him for a while, and eventually he came over and he decided to go to the board of directors and acknowledge, you know, say this. And the board was very supportive. They were very willing to work with him. And mm-hmm. so, um, unfortunately, by that time, he was already pretty burned out. So in, a, in several months, he just couldn't deal with it mm-hmm. anymore and had mm-hmm. to And then the, you know, the nonprofit went through an expensive executive director search, mm-hmm. which is just finishing up. And, you know, and he is going to look, he's looking for a new job, right. which is something that really didn't have to happen. I mean, mm-hmm. they lost a really valuable executive director who was the founder of the nonprofit and mm-hmm. been there for something like 16 years. Oh, my. And uh, they, they're bringing on someone new and, you know, they're moving their office. They don't know what will happen with the nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's looking for a new job. It didn't have to happen. It was mm-hmm. a combination of overconfidence and pessimism bias. Mm-hmm. He was right. overconfident that the board would be not supportive, which I mm-hmm. was skeptical about mm-hmm. his claim. But it turned out that the board was quite supportive. Mm-hmm. So that's something to just recognize about oneself. Mm-hmm. There are some people who tend to be pessimistic and there are some people who tend to be optimistic mm-hmm. and the uh, real you know optimists you know they certainly make many more mistakes than pessimists do right because they tend to be hopeful so most people who start new businesses tend to be optimists and they mm-hmm. you know there's a reason 80 to 90 percent of new businesses right. fail right because they're too optimistic and there are plenty of people who are pessimists and they don't mm-hmm. take advantage of opportunities and they think that they think that things will go poorly and they're not willing to change their conditions. Mm-hmm. Like this executive director wasn't willing to change his conditions. Right. And as a result, they also lose out. And both of them tend to be overconfident. Mm-hmm. The optimists tend to be overconfident that things will go well. The pessimists tend to be overconfident that things will go poorly. <laughs> ah, I never thought of it that way. Hmm. Yes. So this is something that combines with each other in really harmful ways. And mm-hmm. this is something that I help people deal with all the time, kind of when you are in an organization and you often tend to have both optimists and pessimists, which is actually Mm -hmm. a good mix if they can work well together. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, most of the time they don't work well together. Mm -hmm. You know, the pessimists think that the optimists are crazy and the optimists think that the pessimists are just naysayers. Right. Whereas the best way of working together is to figure out, uh, is for optimists to work as idea generators Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're really good at brainstorming, coming mm-hmm. up with new ideas, lots of ideas flying out there. And the pessimists need to not see these ideas as being the same as the ideas that they would come up with. Okay. They need to see these ideas as suggestions mm-hmm. for the pessimists to improve, find all the problems in these ideas and work on improving these ideas. Mm-hmm. And the optimists need to see the suggestions of pessimists, not as bad suggestions, not as like, you know, shooting right. down their mm-hmm. ideas, mm-hmm. but as improving their ideas. So it's a right. very fruitful collaborative process if you can mm-hmm. get them in the same room and working. I mean, I had so many sessions where I combine, I will go into a company and I work on brainstorming where mm-hmm. we determine who are the more optimistic people and who are the more pessimistic people. Mm-hmm. And things go so much more smoothly than mm-hmm. they typically do without an external facilitator who identifies the optimists and the pessimists and helps them work together in a way that taps into both of their strengths mm-hmm. and addresses their weaknesses. Right. 
And and you're right that we do need both of them because, you know, the 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 person who is so optimistic really does need somebody to bring them back down to earth, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and not do it in a way that totally crushes them, which that ends up being probably the fine line is, you know, that that. You know, they're not thinking, well, you know, I had stupid ideas, so I'm never going to, to voice my opinions again. And then, of course, you know, it's the, the same thing with the pessimist. You know, they're going to be putting out things there that, that, you know, could be considered criticism, but they have to, you know, and, and so there could be pushback and they have to realize that, you know, you're not pushing back against them. It's just maybe mm-hmm. that concept. Yeah. And you're not necessarily even pushing back. You're suggesting improvements. Right. So you're suggesting, even if, you know, you could be suggesting, let's not do that, but then you're suggesting a better use of resources. Mm-hmm. So reframing it in a more positive way is helpful for everyone. Mm-hmm. And right. it tends to benefit everyone versus kind of, you know, just framing it in a negative sense mm-hmm. of like, oh, you're shooting down my ideas. Right, right. You know, and, and I always you know, kind of chuckle at the, the brainstorming sessions that start with, there's no bad ideas. Of course there are, you know, it's like, you know, I'm sorry if you're saying, you know, hey, we're going to, you know, how, how do we make this company go forward, you know, in, in, you know, in the, in the next 10 years and somebody comes up with something that is just so completely undoable, you know, whether it's from a resource standpoint or, you know, a talent standpoint, all those various things, I'm sorry, that is a bad idea, but there might be some part of it that is a good idea. So, you know, it's, it is kind of one of those tricky things. Absolutely. It is a tricky thing, and it's one where what I find works well is to identify, focus on identifying the strengths of ideas mm-hmm. and see their contributions, you know, and the strengths of these ideas. Another thing that works well, I find, is to anonymize where the ideas come from and then, you know, have a, have a pool of ideas. So mm-hmm. one thing I often do is in brainstorming, I have people write down ideas anonymously in advance and then have a pool of ideas and then I discuss each idea in turn. Oh, that, I like that. That turns out to be a quite good strategy because right. then people are less personally attached to their idea. And also, you know, there's there's much less personalization when the idea gets attacked. Mm-hmm. And people right. don't have to be like, oh, I am the source of that idea. I need to defend this thing <laughs> because mm-hmm. it's my thing. Mm-hmm. They're like, okay, this is the idea. Other people don't like it. Okay, let's move on to the next thing. Right. Oops. Or much less attached. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit more about kind of this gut instinct concept. And it's funny because the other day I was just thinking about this pertaining to test taking. I remember many years ago, this was you know, before you were born when I was taking these tests, you know, the multiple choice tests, you know, that, that we always have in school. And you get to the question, you don't have the foggiest idea what the answer is. And we were always told, pick the answer that you first thought was right, you know, A, B, C, or D, because your gut instinct is probably going to to have somehow said, hey, that's the right answer. Mm-hmm. And you know, and it probably worked out 50% of the time, you know, and, and but I think so many times that was is, is kind of what we're thinking of is, you know, we don't know that answer. So our gut, you know, our emotional reaction is. A is the right answer and C is completely wrong. And, you know, a lot of times C was the right one. So let's let's talk about how do we get past dealing with those gut instincts? And then I really want to talk about gut instincts pertaining to the the workplace, Uh, you know, especially with job interviews and, you know, kind of along those lines, picking, you know, who clients are going to be, you know, so because we do, we get so caught up in those knee jerk 
first reaction, first impressions that may be completely wrong. Yep. So uh, this is actually a folk tale that your first gut instinct is going to be right. There have been a number of uh, research studies, actually 33 studies over 70 years, Mm -hmm. that show that sticking with your first instinct is often a bad idea. Ah. And uh, what actually happens is that people feel bad when they change their answer. Uh And then they tend to remember those situations when they Mm -hmm. change their answer and they feel bad. Mm-hmm. as much more salient than when they change their answer and they got the mm-hmm. right answer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if anyone wants to look up the research, their research has been studied, published in an April 2005 Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. Mm-hmm. And uh, this has been it's a pretty good study. And so it's a meta-analysis that studies a number of studies. Mm-hmm. And uh, the relevant author would be Justin Kruger. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so that's the name, if anyone is curious about this. Mm-hmm. But so we shouldn't stick with our, we should not necessarily at all stick with our first reactions. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily at all going to get you the right thing. And mm-hmm. what we need to do is there's a specific strategy that has been shown by research to work really well to distract, to address this emotional response. And that's mm-hmm. considered the alternative. So consider the alternative. It's a good phrase, catchphrase to remember. Just consider the alternative. Mm -hmm. Whenever you have a decision or a snap judgment about someone, an evaluation, or a snap decision about whether this is a good thing to buy or a bad thing to buy, Mm -hmm. always consider the the more salient it is, the more important this is, the more more worthwhile it is to do, to consider the alternative explanation. Why why might it be a bad thing to buy? Why Ah. might this not be the right evaluation Mm -hmm. of this person? You know, and finds, you know, why might this not be a good strategic partnership to pursue? Why might this not be a good employee to hire? And Mm -hmm. try to think of arguments for the alternative explanation. Mm. And take your time to think through those arguments and see whether they are more convincing than the pro argument, than your original. Mm -hmm. And so that gives you time to get away from your instincts and intuitions and gets you into a different mode. A Mm -hmm. mode where you're actually using your intentional system to solve the specific problem. And you're mm-hmm. considering both sides of the issue, the pros and the cons. So by considering the alternative, uh, you know, there might be pros and cons, or there might be a, you know, a number of, of things you might want to consider. If you're, let's say, thinking about well, which city to move to with your new business office, you can be considering you know, a number of alternatives. That's why it's not considered the opposite. That's why it's considered the alternative. Or okay. alternatives, mm-hmm. and so you want to think about all of these alternatives and come to a much clearer decision after you do that. Mm-hmm. Well, and you've written a, a blog post about this, you know, in the hiring process, because so many times, you know, an HR person, manager, whoever's doing the interviewing, makes a snap decision right at the very start of an interview, you know, and 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 we're basing those on our history you know, is, is kind of maybe the, the best way to put it, where we're thinking, oh, that person went to X university. Well, nobody good ever goes to that university. <laughs> so, you know, they can't, you know, or look how they're dressed or, you know, all these various things. And, and we do, we go through those and then it's colored our judgment the whole rest of the time. How do we get away from doing that? So one thing that I talk to people about, and uh, this is an important concept, is to 
give people negative points for similarities and positive points for differences. So there's a phenomenon called the halo and horns effect. The halo effect causes us, if we like that one aspect of someone, to cause mm -hmm. us to like all other aspects of this person. Let's say if okay. somebody goes to the same university that we did, and if we have good associations with that university, then we will think that person tends to be more competent at the workplace right. if we're evaluating that, or mm -hmm. that that person tends to be a more competent speaker or consultant or, or you know, lawyer or whatever mm -hmm. position we're considering that person for, regardless of whether that's true or not. So, or if somebody speaks with an accent that we don't like, uh, then that research shows that we would tend to think of that person negatively throughout that person's competence, mm -hmm. whether, again, it's in all of these areas, as an employee, right. as a professional, plumber, whatever. Mm -hmm. We have more negative associations. That's the horns effect. Mm -hmm. So that is a very irrational mode of thinking. Just right. because somebody has an accent that you don't like, or comes from a cultural background that you don't appreciate, or uh, comes from a university that you know, you know, I'm here at Ohio State, and you know, Michigan is the big enemy. You know, I don't. I know. <laughs> I don't. But there, are, there's some good folks that go to Michigan. Absolutely, and you know that whether somebody tell, went to Michigan tells me nothing about mm -hmm. their capacity to perform some task in comparison to somebody who went to OSU and you know, to Ohio State. And, you know, this might be sacrilegious to some Buckeyes, but it's true. You know, they all, all that you know that if they went to Michigan is that they went to a good quality state university. Mm -hmm. That's right. all you know. And the same thing for Ohio State. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, it's really important when somebody goes, when you know that you have some negative association with somebody's background, to give them more positive evaluations in everything. Oh. Okay. So... Because this is intuitive, you know, we would just tend to dislike that person. So mm -hmm. we need to correct ourselves. We need to give them positive points. So, for example, in hiring, you, mm -hmm. what I strongly recommend people to do is to give them more positive evaluations in other categories, mm -hmm. in all their categories, if they tend to dislike that aspect of someone. If someone has an annoying accent or something like that or, you know, nasal tone. Mm -hmm. And if someone is uh, more likable to you for some reason, Mm -hmm. That's something that uh, you want to correct for and give them negative points. Ooh. For example, I'm... A, so you're trying to balance things. You're trying to balance things. I'm a white, tall male, and I have a I have an accent. So You do? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. I have a foreign accent, weird-sounding foreign accent. So white, tall male would be three things that tend to favor people. Mm -hmm. So those would be favorables. So, you know, I would give myself, if I was considering myself for a position, negatives for that and a positive for, for an accent because mm -hmm. that tends to cause people to dislike me more by comparison. Uh, and this is all sh shown by research. Taller people for every inch of height tend to have a significant increase in their salary. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. I mean, and, and yeah, I've seen those studies that yep. just baffle me. Yep, this is this is this is true. You know, mm -hmm. same thing for maleness that mm -hmm. tends to cause same thing for whiteness that mm -hmm. correlates with you know higher. And uh, another thing is attractiveness. Mm -hmm. So people who are rated as attractive, more attractive by a panel than a baseline, tend to get better jobs and you know have higher salaries. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that should baffle you. It's just the halo effect and the horns effect. If some people, for example. Mm -hmm. People who are considered obese in American society 
they tend to get lower jobs and lower, uh, mm-hmm. you know, lower paying jobs than they deserve, uh, according to their skills. If mm-hmm. you if you didn't know that they were obese, so that's when why for making really rational and carefully thought out job decisions, hiring decisions, we need to give positive and negative points for these mm-hmm. things. You know, and, and I really like that concept because it does mean that we're balancing things out. You know, now we're still kind of probably just human nature lean towards those positive tendencies. <laughs> but when you've recognized, okay, well, I only liked that potential new client because we're a member of the same business association. Okay, maybe that wasn't the best reason to, to make a decision, um, you know, or, uh, you know, university stuff. Now, I'm a University of Colorado person living down here in the land of, you know, Georgia and Georgia Tech and Alabama. Um, and, you know, and, and so it's it's interesting because that will weigh into things, um, you know, and, and, and it, it really shouldn't, but it still does. But I think the important thing that, that we're trying to say is you need to recognize why you had that, that initial reaction. Yes, it's important to recognize and it's important to recognize that it will be intuitive and you shouldn't blame yourself for it. One thing that I often find is people blaming themselves for it. You know, uh, the same thing with racism. I mean, to go into a little bit of a hot topic, uh, I work with diversity experts. You know, um, Howard Cook, uh, Cook and Ross is a well-known diversity forum. Howard Cook is a friend of mine and he and I talk about this stuff and it's important to acknowledge that all people have a little bit of a racism thing going on. So even, uh, let's say, talk about black and white. Black people tend to rate other black people as less quality, qualified than equally competent white employees. White. Interesting. Yep. And, and again, folks, th- these are studies that have been, you know, researched very well. Yep. This is all studies. It's, mm-hmm. you know, you might be surprised that that's the result of a study, but that's mm-hmm. the result of a study. That's just what the study shows us. You know, when you have uh, people with F- with African-American sounding names applying to jobs or that are evaluated by African-American uh, hiring people who hire, they mm-hmm. tend to uh, pick those out less well, less often. Mm-hmm. So, so they tend to create, yeah, that's, that's just what goes. Same thing with women and men. Women, mm-hmm. male sounding women, female names, women with male sounding names tend to get hired or at least get the first job interview at a hmm. higher rate than women. So, will, obviously so women if they've have, got names like, say, Tracy or Jean yeah, or you know, something that, yeah, that, that can be either or, <laughs> it, can, it in maybe it's it doesn't throw off your, well, yeah, it would. It would throw off your initial impulse mm-hmm. yes. to either think, oh, you know, this, you know, this, this, they're not a good fit. Yeah, exactly. So they tend to get interviews at a higher rate, their initial mm-hmm. interviews, than the woman who doesn't, who has an obvious female-sounding name. Right. So this is obviously a problem and mm-hmm. you know, but the, for our society, and it's something that I strongly uh, dislike, that it's an aspect of our society, but if we don't realize that it's real and it's mm-hmm. true, then we're just not going to be facing reality in the, uh, and we need to face reality. We need right. to realize how our brains work. And mm-hmm. so we all need to give positive points to people with whom we share an affiliation or who's, mm-hmm. you know, who we like in some way. And negative points to people who, uh, or I'm sorry, negative points to people who we like in some way and positive points right. to people who mm-hmm. we 
don't like in some way, especially in areas that have implicit bias associated with it. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and, and again, what we're wanting to do is recognize that because then when you have recognized it, you can move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can move forward and you can move forward in a deliberate research-based way by giving those mm-hmm. points. And you can feel good about giving those points that you're really actively addressing this situation. And yeah, this is what the research shows is really important. You know, some of the problems with diversity training is they just bring in uh, people to do the diversity training. And then uh, I, I talked to Howard Cook about this quite a bit, that they bring in uh, to him about this. They bring in people to the training and then the training doesn't stick mm-hmm. after it fades away after some time. This right. is why it's important to to put in institutional things that cause people to behave in certain ways and remind them of these principles time over time. And this is why I strongly encourage people with whom I consult on hiring and who use the app that I talk about and who use the tip sheets and guidelines that I talked about to actually institute these as part of their questionnaires. You know, is this Mm -hmm. person like you in some way? Is this person Mm -hmm. Do you like this person in, in some way? Affiliation slash likability. Mm-hmm. Is this person not affiliated to you in some way? Do you dislike that person in some way? Mm-hmm. And then right. the appropriate uh, counterbalance for mm-hmm. all of their interview questions. And the uh, hires tend to be quite a bit better if they do that. Right, right. Well, Gleb, we've got about five minutes left, and I want to talk about something, and we, you know, this is probably something we could talk about for hours, and you know, so I'm only giving it five minutes, but how can we find meaning and purpose and mental and emotional well-being in these science-based strategies? So this is, an, again, an important question. I wrote a book called Find Your Purpose Using Science, mm-hmm. and this is available on Amazon Who, for folks who want to check it out. It's describes it in great detail, but to give the natural version. We, meaning and purpose in life, refers to an overarching sense of drive that causes us to get up out of bed in the morning and go and do the things that we do. So it gives us that sense of connection to our activities and a feeling of fulfillment when Mm -hmm. we do these activities. And so that's what meaning and purpose in life refers to. Now, there are four things that people need to have in order to find a strong and cultivate a strong sense of meaning and purpose in life. One is a sense of their long-term goals and aspirations. What are mm-hmm. they doing this for? What's what's that all about? And mm-hmm. a connection between these long-term goals and their everyday activities in the moment. Mm-hmm. So that's one. Second is self-reflection on how their activities are connected to their long-term goals. Self-reflection is really important, research shows, because that allows you to experience and cultivate that sense of meaning and purpose. Now, the third thing is to have a sense of community, a community with others that is fulfilling for you in some ways. Mm -hmm. So that one. And the last one is a sense of connection to something broader than yourself, something that you you are doing for other people, something altruistic. So some community orientation, whether it's volunteering, donating, whatever I do, quite a bit of activism, like I said, with Intentional Insights at intentionalinsights.org, the nonprofit that I run to popularize these <laughs> strategies for everyday people, that gives me definitely a sense of fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And to, I'm also working on addressing the lies and deceptions in our political system. That gives me a sense of fulfillment. And so these are the things that I'm working on and other people 
need to work on these things too. So these these are the four things that research suggests will help you find meaning and purpose in life. Right. You know, and and it's funny because, you know, I frequently talk with business people about the fact that they started their business because they had a passion for it. And then they get into having to do the bookkeeping and having to do the hiring and having to do the marketing and having to do all of those things that we didn't have a passion for and we don't want to do that business anymore. You know, and 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 I love the fact that, you know, we need to get back to that. We need to remember why did we want to do this? But again, that's just a portion of, you know, being happy in your life. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, folks, we're not talking grandiose stuff. Grandiose is fine, but maybe your passion is in doing YouTube videos to show people how to make a better chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> I mean, you know what? That's, that's not a bad thing. Yeah. Hello, I love chocolate chip cookies. But if that makes you feel fulfilled, then that's great. You know, and, and far be it from anybody to criticize it. Absolutely. As long as you don't grab a second chocolate chip cookie, Deb. <laughs> uh, I'm probably going to grab a second chocolate Fair chip enough. cookie, but Fair I'll enough. stop it too. I can, I can do that. I can stop it too. Fair enough. Well, also the reason I am really passionate about meaning and purpose is that research shows a it helps people, um, people who don't have a strong sense of meaning and purpose have much, quite a bit worse quality of life in terms of their physical health and mental health. Right, right. So people A lot of make times they diseases. become addicts, you know, yeah. all sorts of things like that. Mm-hmm. All sorts of problems. Then mm-hmm. I often go to companies to help cultivate meaning and purpose in the workplace because ah. research shows that meaning and purpose in the workplace, a company that provides its employees with a strong sense of meaning and purpose, has mm-hmm. much higher employee retainment, retention, uh, employee engagement. They are much more productive. They... Mm-hmm take quite a bit less sick days, so they're quite less sick because better mental mm-hmm. and physical health, right. and stronger sense of teamwork because mm-hmm. they have a cultivation of community in the workplace, so they work better with each other. So that's another area that I often consult and speak on, which is the cultivation of meaning and purpose in the workplace. And it's mm-hmm. also described in the book that I mentioned. Great. And the book is Finding Your Purpose Using Science, and as mentioned, you can find it on Amazon. That's right. Well, Gleb... We are at the top of the hour, and this has been just absolutely fascinating to me because it is, in so many ways, it's counterintuitive, and then in other ways, it's like, aha. (laughs) And so that's what is so cool about this is because, you know, for one thing, it is science-based, but there's still a lot of things that that can be discussed about it. And so I want to encourage people to go to your website. And again, again, that's Gleb Sapersky. So I'm going to spell that because it's not like like it sounds. So it's G L. E B is in boy, T S I P U R S K Y dot com. And how else can they find you online? They can find me at intentionalinsights.org, the nonprofit mm-hmm. I run. Again, that's intentionalinsights.org. They can also okay. email me at gleb, G L E B, at mm-hmm. intentionalinsights.org to get a copy of the tip sheet and the app that I mentioned on the show to help folks make better decisions in all areas of their life. Perfect, perfect. Well, this really has been absolutely fascinating, and I thank you for being on the program. I've been having a great time talking with Dr. Gleb Sapersky. I am Deb Creer, and until next time, everyone have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Business Power Hour, hosted by Deb Creer. Join us next time for more real-life stories and techniques to power up your business.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.